0: The common thread is us. Like we can be our biggest obstacle and we can be our biggest advocate and realizing the power of our brain and our inner critic and just what we say to ourselves, it it not only impacts how we feel, but it impacts how we interact with the world. I talk about how everything is from the inside out. What goes on in your brain and your mind impacts how you see other people, how you interact with other people, how they interact with you, and then it starts the cycle. The common thread with everything that I do. and I, I do sports psychology and I work with executives and I do professional speaking. The common theme is what is going on inside of our minds and how to take control of it instead of letting it control us.
1: Hi I'm people Call. And welcome to this episode of the All About Fitness Podcast. That voice you heard in the beginning is a guest for this episode, Dr. Elizabeth Lombardo. Before I go into the full introduction for Dr. Lombardo, I just want to take a moment to say thank you. Thank you for your time tuning in. I know that we only have 24 hours in a day, and I mean this sincerely. We only have 24 hours in a day. So when you take the time to listen to a podcast, listen to an All About Fitness Podcast, I want to make sure it's worth your time. I want to make sure you're getting the content you need to learn how to use exercise to make your life better, to to get more out of your life. And that's exactly what we do today on this episode of All About Fitness. Now, first, well, this is actually second, because the first thing was saying thank you for your time. The second, this is a special podcast that's being brought to you by Voltaren. Voltaren is a topical cream. It's an anti-steroidal topical cream. And I haven't really talked about this, but I am now a spokesperson for, for, for. I am a spokesperson for Voltaren. Voltaren is produced by GlaxoSmithKline, and it's a topical cream for arthritis. I'm in my late 40s. I got beat up a lot when I was playing rugby in my 20s and 30s, and I still stay very active. I try to stay as active as possible, and every now and then I get a little bit of inflammation. I get some joint pain, especially in my hands and in my knees. And when GlaxoSmithKline reached out to me and asked me if I'd be interested in being a, a spokesperson for Vol- for Voltaren, at first I was like, "Wait a minute!" But then I realized, you know what? That's exactly what I need. And I've been using Voltaren now when my hands flare up and when my knees feel a little bit creaky. It's a topical cream. I've been using it, and it really does make a difference. And Dr. Lombardo, she has a very unique background. Dr. Lombardo, before she was a therapist, before she became a clinical psychologist, she was a physical therapist. So this special episode with Dr. Elizabeth Lombardo is actually brought to you by Voltaren. And I'll have a link down below in the show notes. If, you, if you're if you like me and you're starting to feel the effects of arthritis, if those hands sometimes feel a little creaky in the morning, if you sometimes feel a little joint inflammation, check out Voltaren. It's now available over-the-counter. It's a topical anti-steroidal cream. There'll be a link down below in the show notes to get more information about it. I really, really check it out because it really has helped me. On those mornings I get up early, ...and I try to go hit the gym or try to get on my mountain bike a little bit early... ...it does make a big difference and I do feel the difference. Now, one of the main reasons why I wanted to talk to Dr. Elizabeth... ...is fitness is much more than just the body. The mind controls the body. And this has been a big thing. Over the last couple of years, we've really... I think we've done a much better job about talking about our mental health. I know this year you may or may not pay attention to the NFL... But one of the NFL players, Dak Prescott, the quarterback from the quarterback from the Dallas Cowboys, talked about being depressed after he had, a, he had a brother die this year. You had one of the basketball players in the NBA, and I forget which one, but one of the basketball players talk about being depressed in the bubble because they're isolated. And, and you would think that a professional basketball player who gets paid millions of dollars to play a sport might not have those problems, but like all people, our emotions sometimes control our body and we can't always control our emotions. We can't always control the way we feel. There's a very your mind is part of your body. There's a very strong connection. You know, we think of mind-body exercises being yoga or Pilates or something that's a little bit more mindful. But anytime you pick up a weight, anytime you do an intentional movement, that's a mind-body exercise. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to speak to Dr. Lombardo today is I want to understand a little bit more about the mind-body connection. Now Dr. Lombardo is and she has done a lot of work and she's evolved. She started out as a physical therapist, which I think is a very interesting background. And now that she's a clinical psychologist, she also works as, as a success coach or as a motivational executive coach. The reason why I played that clip in the beginning is so you get an idea of what she does. So it's not only that she works with not only she helps people, but she helps people to succeed. She helps people to reach beyond what they might set. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes we all have that. I know I have that inner voice. It's, oh, maybe I shouldn't do that. Or maybe, maybe, what if I fail? Sometimes that's the thing that holds us back. Starting this podcast was scary. And I'm trying to make this podcast my full-time gig. I'm trying to be able to do more work so I can bring more content to you about how to use exercise to enhance your quality of life. If you want to support the podcast, you can do that a couple of ways. You can reach down below, give it a quick rating, let others know what you think, share it, tell your friends about it, subscribe to it. And if you really want to support the podcast, go to PeteMcCallFitness.com. Check out the programs and the ebooks I have available. The next book I'm writing for Human Kinetics, which comes out in early 2021, really goes deep, deep into the science of exercise and aging. That's the way you can support the podcast. I'm here to help give you the information you need to learn how to use exercise to enhance your quality of life. And I really appreciate your taking the time to listen. And I want to make sure it's worth your while. And so with that, let's get into this interview. It's a fascinating interview where we learn a little bit more about how the mind controls the body. Brought to you by Voltaren from the GlaxoSmithKline. A great opportunity to learn more about the mind-body connection with Dr. Elizabeth Lombardo. It is a pleasure to have this opportunity to speak with you. Now, I was looking on your website, and I saw that before you became, are you a psychologist? Well, well, first of all, how do you qualify yourself? Are you a psychologist? Are you a therapist? I'm always interested in what the difference is and how you qualify that.
0: Okay, so we'll have a little little education on that. So in order to be a psychologist, technically, you have to have a doctorate degree, Um, a PhD, a PsyD, some EDDs, but mostly PhD, PsyD. A therapist, you could be a master's level. Um, Okay. A coach, you can just decide you're a coach. There are certifications for a coach, but really to be a coach, all you have to do is say you're a coach. So I'm an executive coach. I'm a psychologist because I do have a PhD in clinical psychology.
1: Okay, well, I think that's helpful because people yeah. do use those terms. And I know the coaching profession has has really blown up the last couple of years. And I do want to ask you a couple of questions about that. But what I saw that I thought was so interesting was you made first, you you're in a whole different field, right? You, you started out, what'd you start your career in? when you first got out of college?
0: So when I got out of college, I went back to school because who needs to be in the real world? And I got a degree, a master's degree in physical therapy. And I loved physical therapy. So I was working actually at the Baltimore VA, the Veterans Administration, which was absolutely lovely. My clients were incredible. Being able to serve our veterans was wonderful. And full disclosure, and this was a long time ago so I can say this insurance was not a thing. So if I want, if I thought that my client needed to see me for three months or three years, if they were getting better, that was fine. And it was, it was really lovely. And I, I loved physical therapy, helping people get out of pain, helping them be able to walk again, uh, be able to move and exercise after a stroke, after a spinal cord injury, all that. Um, but I, I made the change because I, I made the change from a specific client I had a gentleman who um, had a, um, amputation, a surgical amputation because of diabetes. Unfortunately, if people, when diabetes kind of gets away from people, sometimes that can um, result in a diabetic neuropathy, which means basically the nerves aren't working. And so sometimes surgical amputation has to occur. So this gentleman had a uh, surgical amputation, brought him down uh, to, the, to the physical therapy gym. And I was supposed to teach him how to walk again. And I was gonna you know get him a prosthetic device and you know, have him be, yay, he's gonna be independent again. And when he came down to the gym, he was kind of hunched over and had this kind of growling look on his face. And um, he wanted nothing to do with me. He yelled at me and said, just let me go back to my room. Fine, completely understand. So I sent him back to his, his room. We were doing rounds, you know, with the doctors and the nurses and the therapists later. And we were talking about this, this gentleman we'll call David. And um, we all agreed that David was struggling, right? He's kind of depressed about what happened. And the attending physician, the surgeon who literally cut off David's leg, said, I'll prescribe him Prozac. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a time and place for medication. I'm not here to just medication But I just remember thinking, you just cut the man's leg off. Like, Shouldn't someone help him process this? Like, Help him talk about that he's still a man, even though he doesn't have a leg, and kind of help him work through this psychologically, that probably medication won't work, won't do uh, that. And so it was literally, it was like the heavens opened up. And... Was saying, oh, you know, this is your calling, Elizabeth. And so immediately, I started applying to schools, which is funny because I have like almost no psychology background, um, and went back and got a PhD in clinical psychology.
1: And and since then, what has been? What's what do you find is a commonality between people when people kind of get stuck on an issue? And I know there can be a wide variety. That's a pretty loaded question. <laughs> but, what, but what tends to be a common like tripping point among when people when you start consulting with somebody? and they're looking to make their lives better.
0: Yeah, I think in the olden days, they used to blame it on the mother. Um, But I will say the the common thread is us. Like we can be our biggest obstacle and we can be our biggest advocate. And realizing the power of our brain and our inner critic and just what we say to ourselves, it, it not only impacts how we feel, but it impacts how we interact with the world. I talk about how everything is from the inside out. What goes on in your brain, in your mind impacts how you see other people, how you interact with other people, how they interact with you. And then it starts this cycle. So if I walk by someone and I think, oh my gosh, they, you know, they didn't look at me, they must not like me. Then the next time I see them, I might not say anything to them. And then they may be like, why would Elizabeth walk by me? Obviously, she doesn't like me. And it becomes this downward spiral. So the, the, the common thread with everything that I do, and I, I do sports psychology, and I work with executives, and I do um, professional speaking, the common theme is what is going on inside of our minds and how to take control of it instead of letting it control us.
1: Excuse me. Sorry to cut in here for a second. Got to do another little plug. If you're looking for workout solutions, if you're looking for great fitness solutions, anywhere you can carry your device, anywhere you can get a Wi-Fi, you can join me on Wednesdays and Fridays at 12 noon Pacific for a hit at home, a 30-minute workout, high-intensity interval training workout, Hit at home. All you need is a pair of dumbbells, and I recommend a towel and water because you're going to need it. And it's going to be a great 30-minute workout. Go to homeroomfit.com. That's homeroomfit.com. You'll see my schedule. Information is down below in the show notes. Now, another thing that I'm going to be doing, I'm still putting this together, it's going to be a six-week exercise program based on my book, Smarter Workouts. If you want to learn how to exercise, if you want to learn how to design your own exercise programs, if you want great workouts, join me. I'm still putting it together. It's going to be either two or three times a week. The sessions are going to be recorded. So if you can't join me live, I will be able to dump the recording into into your email box so you can do it at a later time or later date but I'm going to be doing a six-week program based on my book, Smarter Workouts. It's going to be about 85% workout program and about 15% book club where I teach you how to design your own workout programs. I'm one of the few trainers that I want to work myself out of a client. I want to teach you what you need to know to be able to design and do your own workouts no matter where you go, whether it's at home, at the gym, or anywhere in between. To get more information about that, go to PeteMcCallFitness.com. That's PeteMcCallFitness.com. Sign up for my email list. and It'll be kept up to date on all education and sweat opportunities. Now let's get back to the interview. Well, isn't that, I mean, a common thing is, I mean, we all have the inner voice, right? And isn't the inner voice, can the inner voice help us? How can the inner voice, I guess, help us balance things out or help us process information? Like take what's going on right now with, you know, the last six, seven months of COVID, the different regulations, all the different things. You know, how how can we use that inner voice to kind of help process this this information?
0: Yeah, I mean, so it's that it that inner voice right now for a lot of people has it sounds like learned helplessness and learned helplessness is this notion of there's nothing I can do. I'm stuck. I think a lot of people are feeling like that, right? Because of the regulations that are going on, because of, you know, all the craziness that's going on in in this world right now. And so when our mind is saying, there's nothing I can do, we literally can go into a state of depression. We give up, we become a victim of our circumstances and we don't do anything. What people, what I want people to understand, what I've been speaking about for the past six months, specifically on this topic, is that Whenever you are faced with a problem, whether it's this COVID issue or anything else, there are always two strategies to dealing with that. And one is problem focused. That means changing the problem itself. So with, with COVID, it may be you know uh, social distancing and washing your hands and that kind of stuff. It's not going to change everything, but that can address the problem. When you can't address the problem in the situation of COVID, you can do some, but not everything always remember that there's a whole other strategy which is emotion focused coping emotion focused coping means you change your emotional reaction to it and and i'll give a personal example because i think sometimes as i talk about this people like oh yeah that makes sense whatever but for my personal life my husband, the love of my life, who we've been together over half my life, um, I mentioned before the interview, we met at the gym. We used to go work out all the time. Um, about five years ago, he started developing these precarious health symptoms. Like he couldn't run as far as he used to. He was losing weight without trying to. And long story short, we end up at the Mayo Clinic, and the Mayo Clinic uh, diagnosed him with ALS. Right, amyotrophic um, lateral sclerosis, Lou Gehrig's disease. Right, yuck. Not the disease that you want. Not that any disease is what you want. But you know, there's there's no cure. Prognosis is three to five years. And at the Mayo Clinic, which is supposed to be, in my opinion, the mecca of of help and support, the neurologist looked at me and said, "Take him home to prepare. Wow. Not you might try this, or you should consider this, or I don't know. You know, here's here's a research study that's going on. None of that. Take him home to prepare." So I took him home and needless to say, we were in a state of shock, feeling helpless about this. But then we asked the question that all of us can ask. And that question is, what can I do? What can we do? And that led us on a journey first problem focused. We found other physicians who were more open to treatment regimens. And in fact, he had a left foot drop after 10 months of IV antibiotics. I gave him six IVs a day. We actually got rid of that foot drop unheard of in the, in, the, in the field of ALS. And I kind of was thinking, well, we're gonna you know, overcome all this and have a great story. Fast forward now, um, he's been on a ventilator, trached and on a ventilator. So he has a hole in his neck, he's on a ventilator and he has a feeding tube for the past three and a half years. And he's really declining now. So he's losing his speech, he, he really is declining. So using this problem focus versus emotion focus, problem focus, how can we change the disease? Now we're really focused on emotion focus. How can we enjoy our time together? Uh, We have daughters who are ninth and 11th grade. He's Statistically, he should already be dead, but he's probably going to pass while they're in high school. Um, So it's a tough, tough time, needless to say. So what can we do emotionally to help ourselves? So some of that is just being grateful for the times that we have. Um, He uses a a communicator, um, a a computer-generated communicator to speak. And the other day, he he, he was looking through... um, his, his father passed away at ninety-four, after being sick for two days. A lovely way to pass, if you ask me. Um, but I, so his brothers had sent him some the, some old yearbooks and. Uh, I'll call them like letters. I don't even say they're love letters from high school. And the girls, our daughters are reading them and they're asking their father questions, making fun of him. And he and he types out with his eyes because that's how he speaks, and then hits the hits the um the, the microphone. And he was saying things like, I was a stud. And you know, just like these really fun experiences that we will always remember. And yet he's dying. And so again, re- realize that even when you feel stuck. Focus on how you can change the problem, but, and also focus on your emotional reaction. How can you change how you're viewing this, how you're interacting this, what's going on within you?
1: And when you do that, because I think that's always, that's something I've learned how to do, right? Is that you can't really, well, with any situation, doctor, I've always kind of, I've always thought about, you have three options and this is kind of very similar to what you said, but you can either lead, meaning get involved and roll up your sleeves and figure out what to do. Or you can follow, meaning if somebody there has better has better resources to take control of it, you follow and you you do what they suggest, or you get it out of the way, meaning you move on and go do something else. And so I, I think a lot of this really has to do with the way you train your brain or the way you learn how to process information. What's something that you know for somebody that might be sitting there feeling a little bit overwhelmed, like my business is still shut down or, you know, I can't do what I normally have done. What's like, what is that method? Or how can somebody change that mindset or change their brain, if you will, to be able to think differently? Because I know that's a whole process. And it takes some people could take just a little bit of time, while others, it might take a more involved, more involved process.
0: Yeah, so I, I created a process I call NRT, neuroregenerative training. And it's it's a system to literally rewire your brain. Because our goal is not to encourage people to say superficial affirmations, right? Like, I believe in myself. And then the other part of me is like, I really don't, or I can do this. No, I can't. Um, the, the goal is to really rewire your brain. And and how do you do that? Well, one is to ask the question, what can I do? So I can't do something huge. What is one step that I can take in the the right direction and celebrate taking that step, celebrating the step and keep moving. If you are in a place where you say nothing, there's nothing that I can do. Then my guess is you are in what I would call the red zone. Now, the red zone that I'm talking about has nothing to do with football, but it's this concept that our distress, our level of distress goes from zero to 10 and by the way distress is any emotion you don't want in psychology we clump them all together in this term of distress so sadness frustration anger hopelessness helplessness guilt shame worry all of that goes in the distress pile and distress is on a continuum from zero none at all you just got off the massage table life is great to 10 out of 10 which is overwhelmed so for example if you're um If someone's a a 10 out of 10 on sadness, they're probably crying, right? And not just a cute little tear glistening down, but like snot coming out of your nose crying, right? Hopefully we aren't at 10 a whole lot. We're probably not at zero a whole lot either. So just thinking, you know, as people are listening right now, just thinking where are you right now? And maybe where are you when you first wake up? When you think about your business or when you start working on your business, when you think about exercise or look at your exercise shoes, you just notice where you are. And that level of distress will fluctuate throughout the day according to who you're with, uh, what you're doing, your physiology, right? We've all heard of the term hangry. We've probably all experienced being hangry, right? So when we're hungry, our distress goes up. But what happens is when we're in the red zone at a seven out of 10 or higher, we think differently than when we're at lower levels of distress. So when we're in what I call the green zone, zero, one, two, three, we're using more of the frontal lobe. Frontal lobe is that structure that differentiates us from other animals, right? It allows us to gauge in executive functioning, problem solving, figuring out different solutions, right? We can see different perspectives when we're in the green zone. But as we go up on that scale, we... Start start using less of our frontal lobe and the limbic system hijacks. And when we're in the red zone, that limbic system is kind of hijacking our rational thinking. It's, it's that fight or flight, it's that, it's that emotional reasoning and it's not 100% rational. And when we're in that red zone, problem solving is very difficult. The ability to see others' perspectives, very difficult. When we're in the red zone, we tend to feel like a victim. There's nothing I can do. And so if you're noticing yourself saying, I can't do anything, my guess is that you're probably in the red zone. And that's just biologically how we are wired. I always tell my coaching clients, when you're in the red zone, it's not the time to make a decision. When you're in the red zone, don't let anything out of your mouth. Because that's when we say things we later regret. And don't put anything in your mouth because that's when we consume things we later regret. <laughs> right? And so just noticing if you're, if you're in the red zone or you're creeping up into the red zone, stop. And whatever the problem is that you're trying to solve, stop trying to solve the problem. Because the real problem right now is you're in the red zone. When you notice yourself creeping up into the red zone or you're already there, stop and do something healthy and helpful to reduce that anxiety, that stress, whatever distress it is. And one of the best ways to do that, and I'm not just saying this because of who you are, one of the best ways to do that is to move your body. Truly, go for a walk, jump on the bed, um, do uh, two minutes of push-ups, sit-ups, squats, any kind of change in your state like that. Listen to music and dance around. That's a really powerful way to get you out of the red zone. Is that going to solve all your problems? Of course not. But it will get you out of the red zone so that limbic system hijack it, you know, isn't there anymore. And you can use more of your, your frontal lobe. You can use more of your rational thinking.
1: Well, actually what you just described. So when I was personal training full-time, I used to work in downtown Washington, D.C. And I would see a lot of my clients were attorneys and a lot of my clients had various roles within organizations that worked with the government. And it was usually my lunchtime clients or my afternoon and evening clients. They would come in and see me and you could just see their face that they had a bad day whether it was their boss, whether it was a work situation. But I used to call that Elizabeth. I used to say, if I saw somebody walk in like that, it was like, okay, let me whatever workout program we had, I had planned for that day, I'm gonna put it aside. I'd go grab a medicine ball and I called it throw things at Pete because I would give them a medicine ball and let them throw a medicine ball for five to 10 minutes. And it was amazing to see just some throwing the medicine ball into the ground, throwing a medicine ball against the wall. It was amazing to see how that changed, not only just their, their attitude, but their physical. You could see it. I mean, I used to see people coming in and, and we're talking via video conference and for listeners, you might not be able to see it, but people would come into the gym, they'd kind of be hunched over. You could see them carrying their stress, yeah. but then you'd see them walk out and just see them. They'd be walking like a half inch to an inch taller and you could almost literally see a spring in their step.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: how does exercise and how does movement How does that really change? I mean, I know there's a whole biochemistry that goes on, but how, how is, how is that movement associated with how we feel?
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it, it literally changes the biochemistry that, the, the, um, the, what's going on biochemistry in our body. So we've all heard of the term runner's high. You don't have to run to get a runner's high, right? It releases certain endorphins and and it just gives us this more positive feeling on the inside. Not only that, but it's interesting. Research shows not only that exercise is as effective, if not more effective than antidepressant medication. And I don't say that so people get off medication. I do say that to realize that that is a very powerful treatment for 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 full-blown depression. Um, But research also shows that when people exercise, their self-confidence goes up. Not because of changes in their body, right? It would make sense if you're looking all all sleek that you're going to have more confidence. But just the biochemical changes from a workout help us feel stronger, have more self-esteem. And that's really powerful. And again, (laughs) the beauty of exercise is you can do it anywhere, anytime is it great to go to the gym? For some people, yeah, but some people don't like that and that's okay. Any kind of movement is going to be wonderful.
1: And now for listeners, when when we have this, before I hit record, we always have a little conversation just kind of because Dr. L- Doctor Lombardo and I haven't met before and we're just getting to know each other. And you told me what you used to do. I mean, when you're you're a physical therapist, but and, and I can kind of hear it in your voice and I can kind of <laughs> you, doing video
0: floor I, count can you hear the floor count yeah
1: <laughs> so what you, i mean so you you said you're a group fitness instructor right
0: yeah so i taught group fitness for almost 20 years i started in undergrad and then i went right to pt school uh starving student right and then i was t- I, I had no money when i first started working starving young professional. And then I went back to school, starving student again. So, and I always wanted to work out at the nicest gym. So one way to do that was to simply become an aerobics instructor. Um, and so, yeah, I started in aqua and then I did step and we were reminiscing about all the different you know, types of, 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 I used to do kickboxing. And it's funny cause like I started learning kickboxing when I was dating my now husband. And sometimes we, you know, if we were in an argument, I'd be like, jump and give me 20. <laughs> um, but what's really funny, it, it, and I loved it. I, I still love exercise. In fact, when we, we've moved around a couple of times and every time we move, when we look at houses, we always look at gyms. Like that has to be part of, of where, we're, where we're going. Um, but the interesting part that I also shared with you before is I used to despise exercise. I mean, in high school, I used to say, I used to say it was against my religion. Um, I don't know what that means, but that's what I said. And I remember going to college and I was so fearful of the freshman 15. Now, in all fairness, I probably could have just not had, you know, drank a lot of beer and I wouldn't have to worry about the freshman 15, but that was not my option. My choice was to exercise. And I told myself, I said, I'm going to start to exercise and I'm going to like it now that may sound like it's impossible, but what I did was I literally rewired my brain. I started finding things that I like to do. I joined a gym and met some really great people. Um, I I like to do the classes. I found things that I enjoy doing. And then I started to see and experience those benefits that we were talking about. And now I've completely rewired my brain. It's absolutely part of my life. In fact, when I was in psychology school, I, I went to a gym. It was great. It was, um, I went to Duke and, um, I lived right across from Duke Medical Center. and the um, gym that I went to was open twenty four hours because a lot of the a, a lot of the um, medical staff would would be over there at three in the morning if if, if their shift was up. And I remember I would get on Steermaster. Oh, there we go. I would get on your steermaster and uh, product placement, and I for an hour, every day. And I would learn anatomy. So I'd have my anatomy mm-hmm. book because it was so stressful to me to try to memorize all this but as I was exercising the stress level went down my brain actually was able to be more open to learn new things and I would be you know I I, that's how I learned anatomy was on the Stairmaster.
1: Well it's funny you say that because I teach a couple online courses for people studying for personal trainer certifications and that's one of the recommendations I always give when somebody says they have a hard time learning anatomy it's like hey Take a step back, make your workout time, your study time. If you yeah. like to exercise any exercise, you do go through the list, identify the muscles, identify the movements, the planes of motion and all that, you know, and all that fun stuff. So, so now is what's inter- I find it interesting though, as an executive coach, do you see some of the same similar similarities between people that might be tentative with exercise and they, that might be tentative in other areas of their life or that maybe blockages that are keeping them from achieving success?
0: Well, I do in terms of people who um, are what I would call perfectionistic. And I to me, perfectionistic just means all or nothing. Something's perfect or it's failure. It's one right way or everything's wrong. It's my way or everything's wrong. And as a society, we are very perfectionistic. right? New Year's resolutions, great example. January 1st comes and I'm going to give up all sugar or booze and I'm going to go to the gym every day. And then January 2nd comes, didn't work, forget it. So in that realm, um, a lot of cl- a lot of my clients, whether they call themselves perfectionists or not, are very all or nothing, right? I I don't have time to go to the gym for an hour, so I can't exercise. I tried meditation and it didn't work. We can talk about what that really means. It didn't work, so I can't do it. So kind of that that all or nothing mentality really gets in the way of mm. a lot of a, a lot of our self-care.
1: And I like, that's interesting. Let's stay on meditation for, for a moment, because that's and, and I'll be and just so you know, I mean, she offered for me to, she, you know, I'm, I'm recording this in the closet. And for I, listeners, you did offer me uh, an opportunity for me to come sit on the couch. I did offer the one couch area, you, yes. <laughs> like, well, this is one area, Elizabeth, where I think I know that lifting a couple hundred pounds is really not that hard, but when I, when I try to meditate and, and, and I'll go through various phases where I do more or less, you know, more sometimes and less sometimes, but when I try to meditate, the challenge I'll have sometimes is really trying to quiet that inner voice and really trying to, I can be still, I don't have a problem being still, but it really is trying to calm. And somebody told me to think of a color. And I try to think of a calming color, like a blue or a dark green instead of like a red or an orange or something. But what are a couple of things? Because I know, and the reason why I ask that this is, is because when I, when I read certain things and I talk to certain high performers, one key thread among so many high performers is they take time to meditate and they take time to be still. So number one, why is meditation so important? Why is that so important? And do you have any, any kind of insights or any suggestions for how somebody can start on, on a practice of, of moving in that direction?
0: <laughs> That's an interesting uh, verb, right? Moving, moving in the direction of not moving. Um, yes. So, I mean, there's an abundance of research out there. And in fact, when I was in grad school for psychology, I used to write in peer reviewed journals, the benefits of meditation. So everything from um you know, being able to sleep better at night, weight loss, self-confidence, uh, problem-solving improves, we're more productive, we tend to be kinder people. All of those things happen when we get into this relaxed state and basically give our brain a break. Now, I will say, I used to write in these peer-reviewed journals the benefits of, of, extra, I mean, of meditation, but this is what would happen for me when I would try to do it. I would sit down, I would close my eyes, and I'd say, okay, I'm going to meditate. And then I'd start thinking about all the things that I needed to do. And then I'd be like, No, no, no! I gotta meditate. Am I meditating? I don't think I'm meditating. Wait a minute, is this working? I don't think this is working. And then I get up and do the list of things that I thought that I should be doing in that 20 minutes. Um, here's here's the and, and and by the way, I have been meditating at least once a day for 12 years, probably. So I'm gonna tell you how I overcame that. First and foremost, I don't know where it became this belief that meditation means your mind isn't, is, is quiet all the time. Like your mind's going to (laughs) wander monks who meditate for 12 hours a day, their mind still wanders. That means that you're alive. And so we're actually really glad about that. The goal is to quiet it, but it's still going to, it's still going to wander and that's okay. So that's one. Um, Second of all, there was a study that my, um, that my, Instructor, so I, I got trained in Transcendental Meditation, it's a, it's a specific protocol, there are a lot of great meditations out there, but my instructor had been meditating for I think 40 years, um, she was talking about this uh, research study where what they did was they put EEG uh, leads on people's heads to look at the brain waves. and then they asked people to meditate, and after the meditation they asked the participants, hey how was that, right, well, what was that like for you? And even the participants are like, oh no, I completely couldn't meditate. I was stressed out about my exam. I was worried about this relationship. Even those people had biological changes in their brainwave. Hmm. So even if it doesn't feel like we're doing something, something is happening. We are getting the benefits. The other thing to consider is there are lots of different types of meditation. So there's transcendental meditation where you're given a mantra. There's uh, just focusing on your breathing. There's mindfulness meditation. There's guided meditations. There's so many out there. What I recommend to my clients, and I recommend all of my clients exercise, and I recommend all of my clients meditate, and I recommend all my clients do some type of volunteering. Because if you do those three things, amazing things will happen in your life. Um, but I just, I just recommend that they try different apps. There are all kinds of apps out there. They, they try different approaches to meditation. Even um, for some people who don't like to have their eyes closed, just staring at a, a candle for five minutes and quiet, something like that can be really powerful. So the more you do it, the easier it gets. But also going back to our perfectionistic thinking, even if it doesn't feel like you're meditating, you're getting the benefits.
1: Well, I think that that's so helpful to have you say that because I think I know my perception of it is I want to be that monk that's sitting in the lotus position, you know, levitating six inches off the ground and like the perfect chakra or the perfect, you know, state. And, And but in reality, it's that just that being quiet. Why is that quiet time? Why can that be so important? And why is why is it that so many people that have achieved success kind of revert to that or kind of look at that meditation as being a key part of that?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, think about it. Our brain is so stressed out, more so now perhaps than ever. But we're constantly thinking, doing, being, and and so when we stop all of that stress activity in our brain by calming it down, we really allow different circuits to connect. Right? We we allow our perspective to change. We can use different parts of our brain to see things in a different way. Um, I, I'm sure. And if you think about it, all of us have kind of been in a meditative state when you first get go from sleep to awake and awake to sleep. We're kind of in a, a meditative, hypnotic state. And I don't know if you've ever had this, um, but I certainly have where we're like I'm, I'm starting to wake up or starting to go to bed and I think of something that I've totally forgotten. Oh my gosh, I never emailed that person. Or Because my mind is quiet, because it's not filled with, with other distractions and stuff, it allows us to really get in there um, Allows our, our our brain to quiet down so that we can kind of just let it be at peace and let our subconscious do its work.
1: And that's, that's interesting because the subconscious, I mean, it is subconscious and we're not always aware of that, but it is always working, correct? I mean, it is always picking up on, on different data points or data input, right?
0: Completely. So our subconscious controls about 95% of everything that we do think, believe. It holds our beliefs, our emotions, um, our memories, right? Have you ever heard a song that you haven't heard in like, I don't know, I, I don't know how old your listeners are. I'll say a decade or two, and you can be right back there, right? You can you can almost smell the smells that were there. You can think of who you are. The emotions can be elicited that you're having when you're having, when you're listening to the song, whether they're happy because it was a happy time or it's when you've got a Broken up with, and so you're very sad. That's all in our subconscious. Our subconscious is working in terms of our physiology, right? When was the last time you had to think about making sure your heart was beating? Never, right? It's always, 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 always there. And our subconscious, it primes. It's very, we prime our subconscious, and a lot of times we do it for not good. I was going to say mm-hmm. evil, but that seems a bit strange. For not good, and we want to do it for good. So, for example, there was a research. Before the pandemic um, that showed that watching the news for three minutes a day in the morning, three minutes a day, even if it's in the background, watching the news increases your chance of having a bad day by 27%. Oh, Wow. That's crazy, right? Like imagine what it is now with, with the, you know, the yeah. little, so, and why is that? Because your subconscious absorbs it, it absorbs it in. And so we really want to prime your subconscious in a positive way. And the best time to prime your subconscious is first thing in the morning when you're in that kind of meditative, hypnotic state, and last thing before you go to bed. So some people, first thing they wake up, they grab their phone, they look at the news or they look at the emails and all it's overwhelmed stress. That's not the way you wanna prime your brain. Some people, first thing they think, uh, wake up and they think, oh God, I gotta deal with that horrible boss or what's my annoying partner gonna do to me today? And here's the thing, your subconscious will always answer the questions that you ask. So be smart Hmm. about what questions you ask, right? If your first thought is, oh, how's this day gonna suck today? Your subconscious will absolutely answer for you. If your question is, hey, how can I bring joy to someone else? Your subconscious will answer that too. It's kind of like if you remember um, maybe when you're in high school or when you were a kid and you were working on a math problem, and it's really hard to get figured out, and then you walk away, and then you come back and you're like, Oh, I got that. It's because your subconscious has been working the whole time. You don't realize it. Um, so using the power of the subconscious, even that priming aspect, is very powerful.
1: Well, it's funny you say that about the subconscious because I do a lot of writing. I write articles, I write blogs. As I mentioned, I'm working on another book. And I'll find sometimes that I don't necessarily get stuck, but if, it, if it's not, if I'm not, if it's not flowing the way I want, I'll just throw some, I'll just like kind of throw a bunch of words out on the paper of kind of where my thoughts are. And then I walk away for a day or two. Yeah. And I don't really think, you know, it's so funny you say that because I won't think about it necessarily. But then when I come back to it, it really, I can take whatever words I threw down and I might look in it and say, I really like this sentence, or I really like this phrase, this stuff I'm going to get rid of, but this I'm going to keep. I never, I never heard it described like that because that just, that, that's one of the ways that when I, if I'm, if I'm writing, I'm stuck on something that it just tends to work for me. I try to, I'll verbalize out or I just throw stuff out on, on a paper and then walk away for a while and leave it. And then one other thing I'll share, and then I want to ask a question about something. And that's when I get monkey brain at night. Somebody told me a while back and I keep now a journal next to my bed. And I find that if my brain's racing at night, if I'm thinking about, I got to do this, got to do that. I just write in the journal for two or three minutes. You know, I write some of the stuff down. Why, why is that so powerful? I mean, why is that such a, a powerful thing? Because I think a lot of people might out there might be, might be thinking the same thing. Oh, and then one other thing I'll share, and then I'll, then I'll let you respond to this. The other thing i found that if I do start kind of going, if I do start get, becoming a little overwhelmed, I really sit take the time to write a gratitude list. I'll sit down and, t- and write a few things about, Hey, you know, let, let's take a look at what I got. And, and as I told you in the beginning, I live in Carlsbad, California. So all I got to do is. <laughs> so there's living, a lot on that list. Exactly. <laughs> all I got to do is think about living in North County, San Diego, for five minutes or two minutes. It's like, eh, what do I have to complain about? Shut up! But but why is why but why is writing things down, whether it's writing down what's in your mind or writing down a gratitude list, why is that such a powerful tool for being able to change the way we feel?
0: Okay, so there's a lot in there. So I'm I'm, I'm gonna I'll, I'll start. We have, scientists say we have about 60,000 thoughts in our mind every single day, about 35,000 were negative. Now, there's no way that we can know what all of those thoughts are, and yet they have an impact on us. When we take it from our brain and put it on paper, it does a couple of things. One, it, it, it tells us, okay, I don't have to be thinking about this anymore because it's on the paper. If it's, I got to remember to call this person, I forgot to do that. If we try to keep it in our mind, our mind's going to keep bringing it up until we do it right? It's trying to remind us. So if you just put it on paper, okay, then your, your, your mind's like, okay, I don't have to worry about that anymore. It's taken care of. Um, there's also been a lot of research, um, uh, scientist named Dr. James Pennebaker. He called it written emotional disclosure, but really it's just journaling and what he, uh, he did all kinds of studies. Fascinating. Mostly with students, but, but also has done it with different medical populations and, and asked Um, randomly assign groups to either write about your deepest, darkest secret, negative, something like horrible in your life, or write about what you ate for breakfast, right? 20 minutes, three times, and that's it. Follow these students for the semester. And what they found was just those three times of writing. At the end of the semester, the people who wrote about, you know, kind of got out some of that, those difficult things, they had less depressive symptoms, less anxiety, less stress. They went to the um, doctor, they had less doctor's visits and they literally, when they extracted blood, they had less stress hormones in their body.
1: Oh, wow.
0: Holy cow. Right. So why is that? Because when we take it from our head and put it on paper, we can see it. (laughs) Um, we can understand it. We can interpret it in a different way because if you take what is in your mind, especially when you're in the red zone. And I, I work a lot with my clients when they're, not necessarily in the red zone, but try to have them remember when they were in the red zone, how they were thinking. If you take what's in your mind and you put it on paper, you you walk away and then you come back and you look at it, you see things differently. Well, that's not right. I said here that, you know, he hates me. I know he loves me. He was just having a bad day. And so we can actually start to see things differently. So that's kind of getting out the not so great. Now I want to go back to what you're talking about, the, the gratitude, because that's, that's a whole another beautiful thing. Um, gratitude, I mean, research shows that when we experience gratitude, the stress centers in our brain actually reduce activity. So it's a very powerful way to reduce our, our stress and just start to see things in a more positive light. The key to gratitude is not just listing, but it's experiencing it. So when you think about where you live and oh the sun and how warm it is and the ocean, you know, and you kind of have that those experiences of gratitude, that's going to be really powerful. Gratitude is I yeah, I I'm, I'm, I would put that in there what I think everyone would benefit from doing once a day too, at least once a day, because it's so powerful. And what it does is, remember we we're talking about when we're in the red zone, we, we focus on what's wrong. And a lot of people are focusing on what's wrong, whether it's with your partner or the, you know, the, our, the, the country, the you know, whatever it is, I'm, I'm not dissing anyone, but I'm just saying, you know, there's, just, there's a lot of negative filtering right now. And yet we know that there's more than just yuck in this world, right? I just share my husband's literally dying and yet there's so much beauty that even we have in our house. So when we we experience gratitude, we're opening up our perspective and we're able to see different things. And remember, we're talking about priming our, our subconscious. When we ask our brain, our mind to find something about which to feel grateful, it starts scanning the environment and it will start to find things for us. And in fact, one uh, one great thing to do um, when you're in a relationship, whether you're having problems or not, it's even better before you, develop problems in a relationship, but one great thing to do is for every day is just to really sit in a place of gratitude for one thing that your partner does or your child or or even if it's your boss or someone who kind of annoys you. What's one thing, not in a fake way, but what's one thing that you can be grateful for about them? And what it does is it really changes your your wiring of your brain of how you see this person. Now it's never going to make you delusional and let people walk all over you. That's not that's not it. But but everyone has some good in them. Um, and so yeah, there's there's a lot of power and gratitude.
1: And now one thing that you said I think kind of goes hand in hand with that, and this is one area, Elizabeth, where I know I need to get better at, and, and I always give myself excuses for not doing that, but I, I picked up on something you said earlier about volunteering.
0: Mm-hmm. Why
1: why is volunteering such a such a powerful thing? What is it about the process of volunteering? I'll do I, I as a coach, I'm a rugby coach, I do high school rugby and I do club rugby. I'm volunteer in that position. And, and also, too, I, I teach group exercise at a YMCA, which pays me less now than I first made when I started in 1998. So I kind of look at the, at the <laughs> teach at the YMCA kind of That's volunteering. It's like volunteering, yeah. <laughs> but but in, all, in all seriousness, what is it about volunteering that can be such a powerful force in our lives and it can help us kind of reshape the way we think?
0: Well, let me ask you a question. How do you feel when you volunteer?
1: Well, no, you feel good because you're giving, you're, you're, you're getting out of yourself. And what I've learned is, whatever I might've had going on before I show up at practice, I might, when I get there, I got to make sure these kids are a safe, number one. And number two, that we do something productive with an hour and a half that we have together. I want to, hopefully we get finished and we got a little bit better, 1% better as a rugby team or as a rugby player that day. And it really, you know, that that's where I, I, that's how I've learned how to look at it is. It takes me out of what I'm doing and, and allows me to focus on others.
0: Yeah, so that's part of it. So that inner critic that may be, you know, kind of going on that downward spiral because that, that's what happens. Our inner critic starts looking at the negative and then we get more in the red zone and then we see more negative and then we get more in the red zone and it becomes this downward spiral. So yeah, it can help you focus on something else. It gives you a different perspective. Um, so for example, my um, my daughter was complaining about how hard her life is and it definitely has, has you know, had some issues. And then she started volunteering um, at with a group of um, foster kids kids who are in the foster system. She's never been exposed to anything like that. And I will tell you, that gave her a completely different perspective of what this life is like, right? And it also helped give a sense of purpose. Having a sense of purpose in our lives, contributing to a cause greater than ourselves gives us meaning, right? And so when we can do that in a meaningful way, especially when we can see the positive impact that we're having on others, it has a huge positive impact on ourselves. And, and it doesn't have to be, you know, six hours a week. It literally could be, I mean, I always say it could literally be holding the door open for someone and, you know, looking them in the eye and saying hello or, you know, just connecting in a way, doing something kind for someone else. Not for yourself, but that's just the benefit that you get.
1: That's it. It's, just, it's good to hear, have you talk about that and realize there's a tangible benefit to it because I know I feel better when I get done. And I know, I don't know how the kids feel, but that's a whole nother, you know, making them run around and do quite a bit different things. And so it's good to hear you talk about it because I know it's one, what's that? I
0: said they're exhausted.
1: <laughs> they're exhausted, but then, but I've heard it's good. That's what I've heard about volunteering is it gets you out of, out of yourself. It gets you thinking about others and, and working with others. Now I want to shift gears here a little bit and ask a little bit about, about pain and chronic pain, because I'm sure as a, as a physical therapist, then as a psychologist, you've probably worked with people that have been dealing dealing with some version of chronic pain and especially with what you've been through with your husband. And I I really do appreciate your sharing that because I think maybe a lot of people out there have dealt with certain issues related, you know, they have family members that maybe dealt with chronic diseases, but want to ask a little bit about chronic pain and and the thing specifically about chronic pain is pain more physical or mental, because I've heard different aspects of that. And I want to hear, you kind of hear what you have to say.
0: Um, Okay, so that's funny that you would say that because when I first got my PhD, I specialized exclusively in chronic pain. And inevitably my clients would come to me with their um, arms crossed, giving me a scowl. And the reason why they would do that is because what they would hear when their doctor, their medical doctor would say, go talk to you know a psychologist, what they would hear is you're making this up. Chronic pain is pain that lasts over six months that does not respond to treatment the way that we want to. There is a huge psychological component to it. And when I say that, I need everyone to hear me say, saying that there's a huge psychological component to it does not mean you're making it up. Does not mean you're making it up. The majority, 99.9999% of people with chronic pain are not making up their pain, okay? How many of you have ever um, had a bad, you know, a long or bad day and get a headache? Right? Or neck pain. That's usually where mine goes. You know, our bodies and our minds are so integrated. They aren't inseparable they're inseparable. So research shows, for example, that when we experience stress, our immune system doesn't work as well. Okay. So stress psychological doesn't, we don't fight off infections. We're more likely to get colds and flus. Maybe you had this experience. I know in college, I would be you know studying so hard for my finals. I'd go home and then I get bronchitis or, or a cold, like after every set of finals because my immune system was just shot. So what we want to understand is the mind and the body, they work together. And so a lot of physical chronic pain can be addressed because there's so much stress, the stress makes it worse. There's a high comorbidity of depression and anxiety for people who have uh, chronic pain, which came first, chicken the egg, it doesn't matter. But what happens is when we can address the psychological issues, when we can change what the mind is saying to you, we're able to really decrease the pain. The other thing that I, I do a lot and I haven't done a lot lately and I love it so much, is hypnosis for people with chronic pain, which Mm -hmm. may sound a little woo-woo and everything. But what happens is when you can have a conversation with the subconscious, the subconscious can help work for you instead of against you. And that's what hypnosis is just, it's really just meditation with a purpose, if you will. But you you can have a conversation with that subconscious to to actually change the physiology of what's going on. Um, And that can be really powerful too. I, I think anyone who's experiencing chronic pain, I highly recommend anyone who's experiencing chronic pain to work with someone on the stress that they're experiencing. Too, because it is stressful. Not only having the physical pain is stressful. How people react is—it's kind of a secondary trauma, if you will. I can't tell you how many clients, and you've probably seen this too: clients who come in and they—they're—they're traumatized because of how their doctors have treated them, or how they interpret how their doctors have treated them, or how others treat them. Right? The old, "Well, you don't look sick," or "You were able to do that yesterday. Why can't you do it today?" Is guilting and the shaming. That's huge. That is a huge impact, not only on your psychological stress, but also how your body absorbs it. Um, um, Dr. Sarno from um, Harvard, you're probably familiar with him. He was um, Howard Stern. (laughs) Let's just name drop here Howard Stern's um, uh, back doctor. So I, I used to listen to Howard Stern in the 80s. Tells you how old I am. But anyway, Howard Stern used to have this horrible chronic back pain, and he went to this orthopedic surgeon. And by the way, this orthopedic surgeon thought that psychiatry and psychology was a bunch of crap and would, you know, go in and, and, and and do surgery. But he noticed that some of his clients would get better and some of them wouldn't. And then at one point he was listening to a client kind of go on and on and on about their problems. And afterwards the client came back for the next, um, the next meeting and the client was like, wow, I feel much better. And what he realized, and it's so true, is think about it, when we're stressed out, when we're holding on to resentment, it goes into our bodies somewhere. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times that's how chronic pain can either develop or exacerbate or perpetuate, get worse or
1: continue. That's fascinating to hear, because I know there's a whole physiology of pain. A colleague of mine does works with a lot of people that deal with pain. And what he's found is that people will have a memory of maybe they couldn't bend over. And so they, they have like this this mental blockage about when I bend over, it causes me pain. So therefore they tell themselves they can't bend over. Is that, is that sort of along the lines of what you're that, talking it could about? Be, that?
0: Yeah, so because that subconscious says, oh, it hurts when I bend over, got it. Your subconscious doesn't, the thing about your subconscious is it's like a sponge, right? If you have a sponge and you put it in water, the sponge will absorb water. Bring it out and you put it in milk, what will it do? Absorb milk, right? It doesn't say, mm, I don't do dairy, right? It just absorbs. And so whatever we prime it with, whatever we tell it, it absorbs as truth.
1: Well, doctor, I know we've, we've covered a lot of topics here. I want to talk to you a little bit about pain, a little bit about stress. Now, before we wrap up, and I understand you have a hard out, what, how can people get more information? I, you have, you have a book out, right? And then you do a lot of speaking. How can people get more information about what you're doing or to learn more about the type of, the type of areas that you work in?
0: Well, no, thank you for asking. So they can go to lombardo.com. That's my website. Um, I, every day we're putting out a content on social media to really help people because what we need right now is to come together and build some skills. Um, I also have a gift for everyone listening. It is at lombardo.com, Elizabeth Lombardo is who I am. .com slash relax. And what that is there are three guided meditations, relaxations that will be helpful to get you out of the red zone, stay out of the red zone. And they're very helpful for falling asleep. My children say it's because my voice will put you to sleep, but I think it's because what it does is it stops that monkey mind because you're focusing on something else instead of, instead of what that mind is saying. And my clients often say, oh, I had the best night's sleep after listening to you. So elizabethlombardo.com slash relax is my gift to your listeners.
1: Awesome. And which social media channel are you most active on?
0: Insta, Facebook, and um, LinkedIn mostly. We do some Twitter, but not a lot.
1: Okay, so I just I'll link down to your Instagram because I find yeah. even though you and I are in the same demographic, I find that I use Instagram more and more, and then that becomes prime the primary way to communicate. Yeah. Well, Doctor Lombardo, I really appreciate your time today, and I really this is a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate what you shared. And are you a hypnoti- Are you a hypnotist?
0: So I do hypnotherapy.
1: Okay, well, and I guess I, I but
0: that, <laughs> that, I, yes, I I I do hypnosis with my clients. I always think of hypnotist as being that person on stage who's going to make you, you know, do things. Stage hypnosis is very different than real hypnosis. So,
1: well, I want to table that because I do want to circle back at some point and ask about that because that's an area where I know very, very little about, but I'm fascinated by that whole mind body connection. Well, Doctor Elizabeth, and we could
0: do a group hypnosis on your podcast.
1: Whoa, I'm a little bit freaked out. by. That. <laughs> well, yeah. definitely I'll follow up with you on that. Well, Dr. Awesome. Elizabeth Lombardo, I really appreciate your time today. And I really appreciate the, the information and advice you shared for listeners. Great.
0: Thank you so much for having me on.
1: Wow, that was. Now, the funny thing is, <laughs> the funny thing is, I, you, you hear me talk sometimes about I, I record these, these conversations in my closet. Sometimes there's some background noise. the ways I, the closet happens to be near the water pipes. If somebody runs the water while I'm recording, you can hear that in the background. But the reason why I say that in the closet is because when... Well, number one, I use the closet because the clothes act as a natural sound baffle. And I have some other soundproofing up to help control the extra sound coming in. But the funny thing is, of course, Dr. Elizabeth made the comment when she saw us in the closet. Is there anything you need to talk about, Pete? I see you're in your closet. Is there anything you need to talk about? So it's kind of fun. I always appreciate... The therapist humor. My father, my father is a, is a therapist as well. He's a psychologist, so I can appreciate that humor with that. But hearing the story about her husband and about having to learn how to deal with what her husband's going through, and and to hear that somebody is dealing with a, a loved one, a spouse, a significant other who is going through a debilitating disease like that, yet still has a great, she has a very positive attitude. She has a very positive mindset. But that was powerful to to me. It made me realize how much I should appreciate what I have. I don't live, you know, I don't have the, the largest bank account in the world. I don't drive the newest car in the world, and frankly, I don't care about that. When I take a look around, I look at the people that are close to me. I look at the people I care about. I look at my family. We're healthy. We got everything we need. We may not have, have everything we want, but we certainly do have everything we need. And so, when you hear a story about what somebody like Doctor Elizabeth is going through, it really makes you think and, and take a moment and appreciate what you have. So, Elizabeth, thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate that. And thank you for giving those insights into... And I think, you know, a lot of times we overlook this, right? I kind of talked about this in the beginning. We get so focused on the muscles that we see in the mirror. We forget about the most important muscle in our body, which is between our ears. So, what can you do? I've been trying to, as I, as I said to Elizabeth, I'm trying to do more meditation. Can I get better at it? Sure. But I'm trying. I'm trying to take that moment. I'm trying to take a few moments of just breathing. Relaxing. Of letting my mind go. And it's no joke that I think lifting a couple hundred pounds is easier than trying to be quiet for five minutes. But it's a skill that I know can serve me well. Because I certainly mean it. Some of the most successful people I've interviewed for this podcast, including Dorian Yates. Dorian is is a six-time Mr. Olympia and he talks about the role that meditation plays. We also have a great conversation about psychedelics, but it's a whole nother thing because that really is truly the mind-body connection. The mind controls the body and we have to be able to control the mind and meditation is part of that. I wrote an article about meditation and exercise. I'm going to link that down below in the show notes. By all means, I'm going to have you heard Dr. Elizabeth's website. I'm going to put that down in the show notes as well so you can contact her. And hey, if you want to support the podcast, Please go to PeteMcCallFitness.com, sign up for for my mailing list. I'll send you information about the workout programs I'm going to be doing. I'll send you information about the ebooks I have, about the content I'm producing. Because again, my goal, what I want to do with this podcast, what I want to do with my website, with other stuff that I'm doing, is I want us all to learn how to use exercise to enhance our quality of life. That means from the inside out. That means from the brain all the way down to the biceps. I kind of like that, from the brain to the biceps. Maybe I'll have to. Maybe I'll go with that. But in all seriousness, please check out PeteMcCallFitness.com. Join me on Instagram, PeteMcCallFitness. That's PeteMcCallFitness. And check out the YouTube site. That's All About Fitness Podcast on YouTube. That's the All About Fitness Podcast channel on YouTube. And as always, thank you for stopping by. And I certainly look forward to having you join me for future episodes of All About Fitness.